The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Carnival of Fire, Episode 3. One early morning, the train drew to a halt in the deserts of New Mexico. The sun barely peered over the bare hills, and the sea of sagebrush was colored purple and pink in the blooming light. Men leapt out of their boxcars to relieve themselves in the dusty soil, and women stretched and chatted near the open cattle doors. I walked the length of the train, for I had never seen the locomotive, and I knew that this was a water stop. From a distance, I could see the engineer and his men step out of the engine and approach a bulbous water tower raised on stilts. They pulled a pipe from its belly and attached it to the tender, and then they prattled loudly as water was pumped into its tank. It was here that I saw the boy. He stood alone, watching the workmen from afar. His thumbs were locked behind his back, and he stood with all the authority of a Kentucky colonel. Yet he was a funny-looking fellow. His head was oval-shaped, and his cheeks were round and freckled. His ears looked like halved onions, and they stuck out from his head. Even his hair was curled and scraggly, an overgrown mass of blonde and brown. I walked up next to him and cleared my throat. It's going to be a scorcher, I said. Oh, I doubt it, said the boy. This little stretch of Santa Rosa is nice this time of year. Don't let the desert fool you. Come October, the mercury barely goes above 70. Nice and mild, you can bet on it. And they even get a little snow in these parts, once winter's underway. I'm guessing you've never been out this way before, huh, mister? The boy spoke quickly, and in the accent of a mid-Atlantic Yankee. I was startled by his exuberance, and more startled still that he'd called me mister, for hardly anyone had called me that before. You seem to know your weather patterns, I said. Well, sure I do. I've been out this way lots of times. Every year, in fact. This is the regular route. Spend a few days in Santa Rosa, cut south to El Paso, and then it's straight down to Mexico. Which is the best part, if you ask me. Warm people, splendid old churches, and food so spicy it'll make your gums bleed. I couldn't help but admire his spirit. And it baffled me how such a friendly young man could incite such ire in his fellow travelers. He spoke so comfortably that I wondered whether we had met before, and perhaps I'd forgotten. But we hadn't. I was sure of it. How long have you been with the circus? I asked. Oh, me? All my life. I'm an orphan, you see. My folks left me in a basket in front of the big top, and that's where old Cletus found me, wailing like a baby. He sniffed with amusement. Well, I guess I would be wailing like a baby. I was just a newborn, after all. You mean these people raised you? I said, incredulous. They sure did. Been here my whole life. I've seen all kinds of people come and go, but I'm always here, riding the train, doing odd jobs. 
Say, you're new here, aren't you? I nodded gravely. Sure am. I hopped aboard in Louisiana. Ah, yes, I remember now. Outside of New Orleans. That little town, what was it called again? St. Didier, I said. Seems like a nice little town, said the boy. Then he looked up and squinted into the brightening sun. Say, you're a magician, aren't you? Any chance you could show me a magic trick? I surely could, I said, drawing my special deck from my coat pocket. I shuffled with practiced ease, then fanned out the cards in front of the boy. Pick a card, any card you like. The boy pinched a card and drew it from the stack. He turned it around and held it close to his eyes, guarding it from my view. All right, now remember that card, I said. Keep it in your memory. Commit to your mind its colors and shapes. You have it now? Then slide it into the deck anywhere you care to. The boy did as I instructed, and then I shuffled the deck again. At my bidding, the boy cut the deck in half, and I drew the top card. Is this your card? I said, showing him the ace of spades. He blinked at it. Then he looked up at me and smiled. I was disarmed. After seeing his smile so many times, it was far stranger to see it aimed directly at me. Close, he said. Close, I retorted. Are you saying that's not your card? I had the ace of diamonds, he said. Then he cocked his head sideways, as if to say, better luck next time. You must not remember, I cajoled. It's easy to forget if you don't play cards too often. Oh, I remember all right, but you won't find it in your deck. I won't, I said, scowling at his impertinence. How come? Because... It's in your coat pocket. And then, just before he spun around and walked away, the boy winked. Combined with his smile, that wink was a chilling sight. I would never have admitted it to anyone, but that one eye, closed for only a second, sent a lightning bolt of trepidation through my soul. He strolled off as cocksure as a prancing rooster. I dug a hand into my first coat pocket and found nothing, only some lint and a spare safety pin. But I hesitated to search the other pocket. Somehow I knew that the boy had spoken true, and when I felt that slip of cardboard, my heart sank. Not because he'd tricked me, but because I had no idea how he'd done it. I have known more than my fair share of women. It is a natural consequence of a life on the road. An unusually tall man who peddles in magic is bound to meet inquisitive girls, and his temporary stay is a boon for some, a frustration for others. At first, I felt confined in the circus's close quarters. I didn't understand its hierarchy, and mostly I kept to myself. But I've found that resolving to be celibate is the straightest path to courtship, and it was this fixed indifference that won me the attentions 
of one Georgiana Bendici. Of all the acts I admired, it was Georgiana's that mesmerized me the most. Dressed in a violet corset and black pantaloons, Georgiana was the mistress of the bicycle. She did not ride one of those newfangled safety bikes, but the old-fashioned penny farthing, with a front wheel as high as a full-grown man. During the show, two assistants would wheel the contraption into the center of the ring and hold it steady. But the assistants were unnecessary, I knew, and were stationed there only to raise suspense. The moment Georgiana sprinted across the dusty turf in her leather boots, then launched herself onto the bicycle seat, her public whooped and hollered with excitement. She pedaled furiously in perfect circles, then knots and helices, until at last she raised the rear wheel into the air and rested all her weight on the front. Then she shifted backwards so that the enormous front wheel seemed to levitate. But these were elementary tricks. Soon, Georgiana was pressing her hands into the bicycle seat and holding herself upside down. Her legs split horizontally above her erect spine as the wheels continued to spin beneath her. She could stand on one leg as she grasped her other foot behind her back. Her right hand pointed forward like a charging general. Her balance was impeccable, surpassed only by her dark Neapolitan beauty. Her lips seemed narrow and concise when she was serious, which was nearly all the time. But when she finished her act, spreading her arms wide before the dazzling lights, her mouth expanded widely around perfect ivory teeth. Wherever she looked, her mahogany eyes shot bolts through the thing she perceived. I can say nothing of our first meeting except that our eyes met across the flames of a bonfire. We had reached the outskirts of Santa Rosa, and some of the boys found a pile of moldering lumber by the side of the tracks. They built a tall kindling pile in an open lot and set it alight. The fire roared in the cool desert breeze, and it was only a matter of time before the fiddles and Jews harps appeared and music began to play. Because I'd fraternized so little with these carnies, I was unaware how beautifully they played. I had spent so much time apart, slumbering in my tent, that I had failed to hear their ditties in the late hours. The orchestra, as we like to call them, consisted of only eight men, and their circus music was all the same. The usual brass and drum, the cheap and excitable pomp of every big top. But here, they played the folk songs of their respective lands, the slow and mournful music that had guided their forefathers through years of lugubrious sorrow. I thought of my mother and the singular beauty of Cajun song, how my ancestors' strings had conducted them through centuries of loss and longing. Even here, in the barren scrub of New Mexico, I pictured myself on the rocking chair of my father's store, I could see the sway of Spanish moss. I could smell the perfume of oncoming rain. I had always presumed that Cajun ballads were the most beautiful in the world. 
but when Georgiana began to sing Tona Osuriento, I felt that I had never truly heard music before. And it was not the song itself, but the voice that sang its melody. Her voice was light and airy, but also triumphant. And for the first time in my brief existence, I was convinced that love could conquer all. And something more as well. Listening to her, watching her sing with half-closed eyes as she crouched by the roiling flames, made me miss my homestead. How many years had elapsed since I had felt the pang of loneliness? I wondered what my brothers and sisters now looked like, which of them had married, what nieces and nephews I might have. I imagined my pa and ma dancing together in the moonlight, as they often did when they thought we were asleep. A jug of wine was passed around, and I sipped it gingerly. For once, I preferred not to glug down wine as a swift means of escape, but rather to taste it, to savor its bouquet, to compliment this evening with the warm sweetness of fermented grapes. And as her song drew to a close, and the music dwindled to silence, I stood up and rounded the fire. I offered the wine to Georgiana, who also rose to her feet, accepting the jug from my hands, and took a generous draft. But even as she lifted the clay vessel to her lips, her gaze never left mine, and I knew that our destinies were crossing. Twice a day, the circus cooks would boil their vats of stew. Men like Cassius and old Cletus ate like kings, of course, but the rest of us were allotted our daily ration of soup, bread, and a mushy apple or two. I had foraged so long in the gutter that this modest meal seemed to me a cornucopia, and I relished every spoonful of broth. When the weather was fine and the soil was soft, the Connies spread their blankets on the ground and ate together in the noontime sun. Such picnics made us feel carefree, and now and again, someone would strum a guitar or play barehanded catch with a salvaged baseball. It was one of those afternoons that I strayed from the others, crossing the railroad yard in search of privacy. I found a crater in the ground, which had been dug for unknown reasons, and at its bottom sat a murky pool. I clumsily descended the edge of the crater, and it was only when I reached the bottom that I saw the boy sitting by the water's edge. Mind if I join you? I asked. Suit yourself, 
he said, not unkindly. He looked up from his flattened sandwich and smiled, as if he'd been expecting me all along. I don't believe I ever caught your name, I said. Eugene, he replied, and extended a small hand. Eugene Blinker. If you don't mind me asking, I said, dipping a spoon into my soup, how do you know your family name? Oh, I don't, he said matter-of-factly. I don't even know my first name. Old Cletus named me Eugene, and some folks started calling me Blinker. That's because I always blink at loud noises, like when someone hammers a nail. Every time that hammer strikes, I start blinking. Or at least I used to. I think I've outgrown it. How come you're sitting out here? I asked. Why not join the others? Well, he said, I could probably ask you the same question. Fair enough, I admitted. I wanted to clear my mind. Circus life gets claustrophobic, wouldn't you agree? I suppose it does, said Eugene, who sighed dramatically. But what would I know? I've never lived any other way. That strikes me as incredible, I said. All your life among these carnies, and... I hesitated, but I couldn't help myself. It seems to me they don't treat you very well. Until that moment, Eugene had smiled in the normal way. I had not realized how genuine he seemed, like any teenaged boy sitting in the sunshine, watching ripples in the water. But then his smile changed. It became bigger, stranger. The smile was a deliberate expression, I surmised. He had sculpted his face to mimic a smile, but it looked no more convincing than a false laugh, false tears, false sympathy, false compliments. As Ovid said, be patient and strong, for this struggle will one day be useful to you. Then Eugene chuckled and went back to his sandwich. Well, he would have said it, per fer et obdora dolor hic tibi proderitolim. His citation startled me, for Eugene spoke the classical words as easily as if he'd lived in ancient Rome. Don't tell me you've studied Latin, I said, a probing jest. Or have, Eugene said through a mouthful of bread. And French and Spanish, some Lithuanian, some Romani. But that's easy. The circus takes all kinds, from all over the world. You just have to listen to the immigrants talk, and you catch on to what they're saying. What I really want to learn is Chinese, or maybe Japanese. I haven't decided. Maybe I'll try both. Chinese, I said. Won't be much use around these parts, unless you need some laundry done. Not here, Eugene corrected. I want to go there, to the Orient. I want to see it all. I want to see the Shinto temples and the Mandarin palaces and the statues of the Holy Buddha. And once I've seen those, I want to learn their languages and read their books. I figure China's been around for thousands of years, much longer than Europe, and they've probably learned a thing or two, which the white races can only imagine. Well, I said uncertainly, that could very well be. After all, said Eugene excitedly. 
The Chinese were using gunpowder back in the Song Dynasty, and they invented printing presses, and irrigation, and the wheel, and the crossbow, and so many wonderful things. And once I start traveling, I want to talk with them about the technology they've engineered, and how they came up with it. Hold on a minute, I said. How come you know so much? You're talking like a doggone professor. This time, his forced smile also bore a dash of flattery. I like to read. Everywhere I go, I find a new book for my collection. Magazines, too. I have more than a hundred copies of National Geographic, and Popular Mechanics, and Harper's Magazine, and anything else I can get my hands on, really. Every time I come to a new town, I find a copy of the local newspaper. I read every word of it. Honestly, I can never get enough. Well, that's very clever of you, I said. And I meant it. Strange as he was, the boy's energy never seemed to flag. He seemed alive and incandescent. If he'd said that he'd one day run for president, I might have believed him. His eyes were wide, as if he saw something no one else could see. And whatever it was, enthralled him. A queer feeling crept over me. I felt out of my element, like a dwarf in the presence of a giant. The feeling overwhelmed me so, I had to change the subject. When do you plan to travel? Soon, Eugene said. But don't tell anyone. I don't want to make anyone worry. The statement took me by surprise. I wondered who would worry, given how universally they mistreated him. I realized I had barely touched my soup, and it was growing cold. I slurped some of it down, but curiosity had diminished my appetite. I always wonder, he said. His voice was so small that I could barely hear him. Go on, I said. What did you wonder? Well, he said, I never had parents. Real parents, I mean. Sometimes I'll walk through town down some main street somewhere, and I'll see a boy, someone my age, and his parents will give him a nickel. He'll skip across the street to the malt shop. I've seen it a hundred times, I swear. He'll sit himself down at a stool, and he'll order himself a milkshake. He paused. And I've always wondered what that's like. Never in my life had a few simple words cut so fiercely into my heart. He spoke so plainly, so earnestly, that I refused to suspect his intentions. What child should ever be refused such a fundamental pleasure? I welled up with indignity. I rose suddenly to my feet. Eugene, I said, why don't you come along with me? Eugene was a know-it-all, I could tell. And the only difference between him and any other know-it-all is that I think he really did possess a wealth of knowledge, far more than I ever will. But the way he looked at me, I could tell he was taken aback. He could never have anticipated what happened next. We climbed out of the crater, crossed the railroad yard, passed disinterestedly through the throngs of picnickers, and arrived at my ragged little tent. Wait right here, I said. I knelt down and crawled into the tent, then closed its flap securely. I took my suitcase in my hands and opened it. 
Inside lay two stacks of clothes, plus some other odds and ends. I removed these from the trunk and placed them carefully to the side until the case was empty. Then I felt along its edges and found the special switch. The false bottom dislodged from the suitcase, and I lifted the panel just enough to peek inside it. There before me lay the ranks of dollar bills, scores of green packets bound in paper strips. I hadn't bothered to count it all. The money was clean and crisp, arranged in a pecuniary grid. As I reached inside, my finger nudged a dark object in the middle, a small metal hunk that curved like a comma. I swallowed hard. I hadn't looked at the money since I'd procured it, nor had I laid eyes on my Derringer pistol. I slipped a single greenback from its billfold, crumpled the bill into my pocket, and then arranged all my effects as I had found them. I backed out of the tent, dusted myself off, and said, Eugene, I do believe there's a drugstore in town, and I'll be damned if they can't make a milkshake for you. Eugene walked the entire way to town in stunned silence. I doubted that boy had ever been so quiet. The bell tinkled as we stepped inside the drugstore, and Eugene sidled up to its counter with the reverence of a pilgrim. He looked at his reflection in the polished wood, something I would never have thought to do, for I've been to plenty of malt shops, and they're all the same to me. Yet I could see in Eugene's eyes a powerful revelation. To sit inside the bright little room was akin to feeling the Holy Spirit. A pink and ribboned girl smiled sweetly as she mixed his milkshake, and when the tall glass was set down in front of him, I thought Eugene might just burst into tears. But instead, he studied the glass's corrugated surface, the paper straw, the maraschino cherry floating in a cloud of whipped cream. When he finally sipped, he closed his eyes, for this was the taste he had desired for all his 16 years. Then he sat back, swishing the sugary concoction in his mouth, and he whispered, The world is going to be mine one day. You'll see, John Luke. I'm going to take it by storm. I was so moved in that moment to see such a tormented young man look so happy and grateful. I was overtaken with joy, proud that I could give something so small and know it had meant so much. Indeed, I was so busy congratulating myself, it never occurred to me to wonder how Eugene had learned my name. You've been listening to The Carnival of Fire, Episode 3, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music and sound effects, courtesy of and licensed by Audioblocks.com. To learn more about the exciting field of uncanology, visit ElizabethCrown.net.